how do we deal with a superpower led by a war criminal? That is a real headline. Thomas Friedman is asking us, how do we deal with a superpower led by a war criminal? And no, Thomas Friedman is not talking about the United States here, although the United States surely does apply. <laughs> how do we deal with a superpower led by a war criminal? Okay, so if we go back to even just the United States' recent history, we could be asking this question in relation to the Bush administration, right? Just the Afghanistan and Iraq invasions alone, killing more than a million people, destabilizing an entire region, causing a huge refugee crisis and chaos and the spread of terrorism across the world. We can go on and on and on. The devastation of uh, the Arab and Muslim worlds. That was a war crime. All of that was a war crime. But yet Thomas Friedman doesn't ask this of the George W. Bush administration. Then Barack Obama comes into power and Thomas Friedman wasn't asking this question about Barack Obama when Obama extended the U.S. war landscape from two to seven, began drone strikes, rampant drone strikes, constant drone strikes on Pakistan, on Yemen, Somalia, right, killing thousands of civilians, even a couple of U.S. citizens in Yemen. The, uh, Barack Obama destroyed Libya and extended that war after destroying the most prosperous African nation, extended that war into Syria, causing the largest refugee crisis in human history, uh, destabilizing again the entire region and extending that destabilization throughout North Africa, as we saw in Mali, in Niger, Right, These countries are plagued with instability and chaos now and even a lot of so-called jihadist terrorism because of the way that the United States supported these forces in Libya to overthrow Muammar Gaddafi and the Libyan government. And that just scratches the surface. Obama had a kill list, right? He had a kill list of uh, Muslims that he was targeting for extrajudicial murder and assassination as part of of that drone terror campaign that he presided over. I mean, uh, he staged coups in Ukraine and Honduras, 2014, 2009. I mean, we can go on and on and on about Barack Obama's war criminality, but surely this question could be asked of Barack Obama. Then, of course, Donald Trump, right, continued all of those wars for the most part and then became really the face of the new Cold War on China, which had immense and has continues to have immense consequences on both the domestic and international political situation. Uh, Donald Trump uh, certainly could be called a war criminal in his own right, even for just extending Barack Obama's uh, sponsored war on Yemen, right? I mean, Donald Trump certainly was no friend of peace, no matter what he said on his campaign. So this question could be or could have been asked during the Trump administration. But Thomas Friedman hasn't done any of that. And now that Biden is in power, he has, he's not asking this of Joe Biden either, despite the fact that Joe Biden is starving. Over 10,000, I think it's not 13,000 babies in Afghanistan have died because of the way the Biden administration has stolen 
aid from Afghanistan, uh, aid that Afghanistan is completely reliant upon as a way to punish the new Taliban-led government in Afghanistan after the United States had that disastrous withdrawal late in 2021. The Joe Biden administration has committed war crimes there, continues to commit war crimes by sending weapons to Saudi Arabia, continues to commit war crimes by sending weapons and aid to Israel. We can go on and on and on. The United States is an empire of war criminality. Yet Thomas Friedman has never asked this question. How do we deal with the superpower led by a war criminal of the United States? Right. So who is he asking it of? Well, He's asking it of, of Russia. He's saying, how do we deal with Vladimir Putin, right? So I'm not going to waste time on this article, uh, but essentially, according to Thomas Friedman, Vladimir Putin is a war criminal. And of course, right, this comes amid this Russia-Ukraine conflict, which doesn't show any end in sight. Today, the State Department under Antony Blinken said that he doesn't see this conflict ending before the end of this year, meaning that we still have a good part of two-thirds of this year left. And he expects, fully expects, that the Russia-Ukraine conflict will continue on until then, meaning that the United States definitely has a huge role to play in this as well. And of course, we've been covering that here over at the left lens, talking about how the United States has pumped military aid, right? The Biden administration just gave $800 million more million to Ukraine's government to continue its uh, onslaught in Ukraine, right? Because Ukraine has been waging this war for eight years within its own borders. And now it has also directed this toward Russia, which is coming to the defense of Donetsk, Lugansk, and the Donbass region. So it is going to be a question, right? Is Putin a war criminal? That's what I named this stream. Well, Thomas Friedman thinks so. Myself, I think that we still need to see. We still need to understand that this is a war that has been going on for so many years and we should not jump to conclusions and just go along with what the corporate media says and let's try Let's uh, arrest Vladimir Putin, take him to The Hague as if, right, this hasn't been done before, that this playbook hasn't been done before with Slobodan Milosevic, right, in Yugoslavia. They hauled him off to The Hague and he mysteriously died, right, during that process. But nonetheless, he was accused of war crimes, right, the massacre against Albanians, etc. When we know that U.S.-backed forces like the Kosovo Liberation Army in Yugoslavia were massacring people, especially Serbs, massacring, massacring Serbs, massacring communists and socialists in huge numbers, massacring civilians in huge numbers, and they were never held to account. So this, a very similar thing is happening with the Russia-Ukraine conflict. I look forward to talking about that more in the future and having people, I'm trying to get Scott Ritter on the program. Uh, maybe even Pepe Escobar, because both of them have been canceled on Twitter. You probably all have seen that over the last week or two. And so I hope to have them both on as I reach out. But there's a lot to do. So, you know, I'm going to be trying to have interviews about the Shanghai lockdown, trying to have these folks on, and we'll see where that goes. But nonetheless, Thomas Friedman, 
right? Thomas Friedman is saying that Russia is a superpower led by a war criminal. Well, this is very interesting for Thomas Friedman to make such a conclusion because Thomas Friedman is implicated in war crimes himself. So while Thomas Friedman likes to play this role as a liberal hawk, and he's done so for decades, the reality of the the reality is is that Thomas Friedman actually has promoted and actually cheered on war crimes, literal war crimes. And he's done so with almost every single war. He literally doesn't know a war he does not like. There is not a war out there that he does not like. And we can go over this pretty, uh, you know, pretty efficiently, right? Thomas Friedman has a long paper trail over his support for war crimes. And the U.S. is a superpower. It's an imperialist superpower. So we should ask Thomas Friedman why he doesn't ask this of the United States. Well, the simple answer to that is, is Thomas Friedman actually likes war crimes. He enjoys war crimes very much because those war crimes help those who he supports and latches onto, which is this uh, imperialist empire, this financial capitalist class that Thomas Friedman ultimately speaks for because that's who his audience is. That's who he's employed by. He is employed by Monopoly Capital. He is a spokesperson of the U.S. war machine. And so he has no problem with war crimes. And he's, does, he doesn't have any right to speak of war crimes in the way that he did with regard uh, to Vladimir Putin. Because, I don't know if you remember this, but in the lead up to the Iraq war, Thomas Friedman was actually building liberal support, building Democratic Party support for the invasion of Iraq. So this invasion of Iraq, right, if we're talking about war crimes, what Russia is doing in Ukraine pales in comparison, actually can't even be spoken in the same sentence as the criminality that the United States committed in Iraq. So a couple of months before the United States invaded, before they launched their military operation, Thomas Friedman was talking about the Iraq war in this famous op-ed of his where he titled A War for Oil. And I'm just going to scroll down to the conclusion because in the conclusion, he says straight up, so I have no problem with a war for oil provided that it is to fuel the first progressive Arab regime and not just our SUVs, and provided that we make it, we behave in a way that makes clear to the world we are protecting everyone's access to oil at a reasonable price, not simply our right to binge on it. So he essentially in this op-ed calls for regime change in Iraq. And he says straight up, he says without any hesitation, right, that Any war we launch in Iraq will certainly be in part about oil. To deny that is laughable. But whether it is seen to be only about oil will depend on how we behave before an invasion and what we try to build once we're there. So he's literally calling for democracy building in Iraq. And he talks here. He says in straight, plain terms. Let's cut the nonsense. The primary reason the Bush team is more focused on Saddam is because, and this is in contrast to, let's say, the DPRK, North Korea, if he were to acquire weapons of mass destruction, it might give him the leverage he has long sought, not to attack us, 
but to extend his influence over the world's large, so, largest source of oil, the Persian Gulf. But wait a minute. There's nothing illegitimate or immoral about the U.S. being concerned that an evil megalomaniac, megalomaniacal dictator might acquire excessive influence over the natural resource that powers the world's industrial base. So in a sense, he's saying there's nothing immoral about a U.S. invasion of Iraq as long as it's done the right way, as long as it's not just about the U.S. stealing oil and then pumping it all for itself and jacking up prices, right? As long as the United States is waging a war in Iraq for oil and overthrowing uh, the Saddam Hussein government, that uh, this war will be a just war. So he was legitimately actually calling for the U.S. to invade Iraq. He was building a liberal consensus for it. For it, That is Thomas Friedman. So Thomas Friedman talking about war crimes with Russia and Vladimir Putin is quite laughable given just that alone. But that's not all. Because not only was Thomas Friedman carrying water for the Bush administration as sort of this liberal pundit. But he was also, during the lead-up, right, to the Barack Obama election, he was actually calling for Barack Obama to, and I kid you not, he was calling for Barack Obama to make Dick Cheney his vice president. So Dick Cheney is known universally as a war criminal. Dick Cheney is not someone who's talked about very often in the mainstream these days because liberals and everyone alike, I mean, across the political spectrum, understand that Dick Cheney was one of the architects of the bloodiest wars in, in human history, right? Some of the most bloodiest wars in human history, Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, he is known as the hawk of all hawks, and he even admits it in this article. But even though he says he's not a Dick Cheney fan, Thomas Friedman is saying that with Iraq and Pakistan and Hamas and Hezbollah, Syria and Iraq and militias in Iraq, that Barack Obama needs Dick Cheney, right? This is in the lead up. This is 2007. This is in the lead up to the election. This is even before the nomination. He doesn't know, but he is going in with Obama and he says, we need an Obama-Cheney ticket, right? And why? It's because he's a hawk-eating hawk, he says, who swoops down and declares the U.S. will not permit Iran to develop a nuclear weapon, right? And so he says because he's so hawkish on Iraq, that is a very good thing for Barack Obama. And he says something very interesting, right? And he goes over all of this ridiculousness right with dick cheney but he says for course he has this so he says that he needs right it's so funny he thinks he needs in order to go to iran and build right we know what happened right uh, barack obama made Iran, one of his kind of foreign policy signatures with the JPCOA, and this was in the lead up to it, right? 2007-2008, Iran was part of this axis of evil and whatnot that the Bush administration had labeled. And he said, right, 
in order to address now, after Iraq and Afghanistan and Pakistan, now Obama, right, in terms of his him stressing engagement with Iran, he needs to do more than that. He needs to uh, get a feel for how generating the leverage you need to make such diplomacy, coercive diplomacy, they call it, work. So when negotiating with murderous regime like Iran's or Syria's, you want Tony Soprano by your side, not Big Bird. So Mr. Obama's gift for outreach would be much more effective with Dick Cheney standing over his right shoulder, quietly pounding a baseball bat into his palm. So there you have Thomas Friedman calling for Barack Obama to make Dick Cheney his vice president because that would essentially give him the stick that he needs with the carrot to engage in what he calls and what the Wilson Center that he cited, that is this, uh, Wall Street and uh, State Department funded think tank, they are saying that coercive diplomacy is the only way to engage in diplomacy, which means you need both a carrot and a stick. You need Obama's talent for just engaging in a peaceful manner, and you need Dick Cheney's stick, meaning you need to be ready to wage war, to engage in warmongering rhetoric, to wage aggressive policies on behalf of the war machine, because that's what effective diplomacy is. That's the definition of diplomacy to the United States, is war, essentially. And so, yes, Mr. Obama, he says, needs Dick Cheney standing over his right shoulder, quickly pounding a baseball bat into his palm, meaning that Obama will use that bat because Dick Cheney told him so. So this is this is very interesting, right? Because he literally says here, if Democrats want to win this election, they have to get these two in balance. They have to learn how to criticize the Bush record from the right and the left to show that they can be better at engagement and coercion, meaning that Thomas Friedman believes that Dick Cheney would have been, right, would have been an effective vice president for Barack Obama because he would have helped Obama become a more effective warmongering imperialist. Now, uh, Barack Obama was just fine with Joe Biden at becoming a more effective evil of imperialism. I've gone over his record expansively on this program, and it was a subject of my last article last week published on Substack. But nonetheless, this just goes to show the lengths that Thomas Friedman will go to promote endless wars, to promote war crimes. So again, this is very ironic or not ironic at all, but this just exposes hypocrisy of the United States and of Thomas Friedman in particular when he says that, or when he poses the question to the New York Times of all places, pose it to their audience of all places, how do we deal with a superpower led by a war criminal. Well, Thomas Friedman has done even more than just this, even more than just calling for Obama to make his vice presidential nominee, Dick Cheney, more than carrying water for the Bush administration in the lead up to the war on Iraq, the invasion of Iraq. He has gone even further than that in recent years. So as the U.S. was mired, right, and still is mired, in this ongoing war on Syria, in 2015, 
Thomas Friedman did something you would think is a little strange, even for Thomas Friedman. But he kind of exposed something very important here. So in this op-ed in 2015, March of 2015, it's about the four-year anniversary of this war on Syria. Go ahead, ruin my day, right? He has all of these ridiculous kind of, I don't even know. He's He's really is the journalist of the metropolitan elite. He talks to these kind of Wall Street types, these folks who live on like the Upper East Side in their flats or whatnot. So in this op-ed though, Thomas Friedman literally calls for the U.S. to arm ISIS. I kid you not. He is in this op-ed, and I'm going to show you where, that the U.S. should arm ISIS. That is his argument. And so he's talking about Iran and Syria and how we should deal with, how the United States should deal with it. He says... ISIS, with all its awfulness, emerged as a homegrown Sunni Arab response to this crushing defeat of Sunni Arabism, mixing old pro-Saddam Baathists with medieval Sunni religious fanatics and a collection of monolith, blah, blah, blah. Obviously, I abhor ISIS, and I don't want to see it spread and take over Iraq. I simply raise this question rhetorically because no one else is. Why is it in our interest to destroy the last Sunni bulwark to a total Iranian takeover of Iraq? Because the Shiite militias now leading the fight against ISIS will be will rule better? Really? It seems we only have bad choices in the Middle East today and nothing seems to work. And there's a reason. Because past is prologue and the past has carved so much scar tissue into that landscape and it's hard to see anything healthy or beautiful growing out of it anytime soon. But in this article, he is saying that the United States should not actually be at war with ISIS. What interest does the United States have in destroying ISIS? I mean, this is this is how just crass and crude Thomas Friedman is, right? He believes that in order to stop Iran, right? So he says we're gonna live with Iran on the edge of a bomb, right? He's he's in his writ. He's he is a real pro-Zionist hawk. He believe he spreads all of the narratives about Iran with nuclear weapons, Syria, all of that, right? Chemical weapons. So he believes ISIS is a very useful bulwark against these forces, right? He wants to see ISIS, forces like ISIS, control these countries. I mean, this isn't necessarily out of the ordinary either, because if you read foreign policy documents, especially even in Israel, you'll see that there is actually a geopolitical strategy that Israel has even itself of supporting really reactionary forces, especially these sort of terrorist elements in order to destabilize countries that oppose not only their expansion into Palestine, but also their broader foreign policy designs, which is really to destabilize and to, to expand their own influence outside of what is known as Israel proper, right? The colony of, of Israel. So that's Thomas Friedman. Thomas Friedman apologizes for ISIS, says that we should not just we shouldn't be destroying ISIS. We should actually be supporting them in their, uh, while they, they aren't supportable ideologically or even how they do things, but in the overall trajectory of the Middle East, that's, it's not worth, right? It, ISIS is not worth getting rid of, right? Because 
shouldn't we at least bomb the last Islamic state to smithereens, right? To help us destroy this head-chopping menace. And so he says, he said, we should we be arming ISIS? That's the question. Should we be arming ISIS? That's what Thomas Friedman is thinking about. That's what he was thinking about the war on Syria. Why are we for the third time since 9-11 fighting a war on behalf of Iran? So this is how he's thinking. Arm ISIS as a bulwark against Iran, against Syria, because when the United States destroyed uh, Afghanistan, when it destroyed Iraq, that created more strength for Iran. I mean, that's how criminal Thomas Friedman is. I mean, he, writing things like this, right, right writing pieces like this, it's a definition of war criminality.